All right, good morning, everybody. <clears throat> my name is Spencer. I uh, get to hang out with a lot of youth and young adults throughout my week as uh, youth pastor and young adults pastor. Uh, and I also, uh, every once in a while, get the chance to preach uh, as well on Sunday mornings, which I really enjoy. Uh, and so I'm looking forward to being here with you this morning. Um, I'm going to be talking about Daniel chapter 2. Um, I could probably walk away and just let that video explain it. Uh, it'll probably be a lot better job than I will. But let's, let's overview a little bit from chapter 1 and, and what Bruce preached on last week and what the video touched on. So in chapter 1, we hear about King Nebuchadnezzar bringing all the, the best, the wisest, the best-looking people uh, from his kingdom, which now includes God's people as he's taken them over. And he wants to have them be a part of his court. So all of the, all of the people around him that he surrounds himself with that are, are going to bring him wise counsel and be able to see visions and all these things... He wants the best of the best. So he sets up this plan where he goes, okay, I'm going to grab all these people. I'm going to train them up for years and not, not physical training, but mental training and all these kinds of things that are going to bring them wisdom. And they are going to be able to uh, counsel me so that I can be the greatest king that there ever was. That's what he wants. And Daniel and his friends are a part of this. And so we read in chapter one, and as Bruce mentioned last week, um, that the king also wants these people to um, eat a certain kind of food and drink a certain kind of wine, which Daniel and his friends believe would defile what God asked of them. And so they say, actually, we're not going to do that. Um, but what we would like to do is, if, if King, if you'd allow us to eat nothing but vegetables and water, uh, we, we, we bet that we will be just as strong, if not stronger, and, and better suited for this kind of work than, than your people. So the king agrees to it. They do it, and the Bible tells us that they become ten times better than the rest of these people. And so because of this, King Nebuchadnezzar actually quite likes Daniel and his friends. I mean, why wouldn't you? They're your best people. They're ten times better than anyone else you have. Uh, so let's keep that in mind as we dive quickly into chapter 2 as well. So chapter 2 comes when we've established that King Nebuchadnezzar likes Daniel and his friends, Right? Um, because even when the king asked them to conform, Daniel and his friends have stood up to that, but in a relatively respectful way, right? I mean, Daniel could have gone and said, no, king, what you want, what you're asking of me is completely wrong, and I'm going to plant my flag in the sand and just say, you're, n- you're not the king I'm going to serve, and I'm just going to sit here on my hands. But actually what Daniel does is says, hey, let's, let's work out something that works out for the two of us. Let, I'll, I'll do things my way, and it will actually benefit you because I will be even better and wiser than your people. And the king loves that, even though Daniel's actually staying loyal to God above anybody else, which I think is pretty fantastic. So Daniel cl- uh, clearly sets himself apart and this is uh, making a distinction in himself without really upsetting the order around him. Right? He, doesn't, he doesn't sit there and tweet about how things are bad around him and how he hates certain people, um, but in fact he actually just says, King, let's work together on this, and let's make sure that um, we both win in this situation. Again, which is probably why the king really enjoys Daniel. So let's dive into the first four verses here of chapter 2. They'll be on the screen. Uh, If you have a Bible, you can also turn to that. We'll read along here. Now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans, to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. 
The king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. So we'll stop there. This is pretty straightforward, other than the fact that Chaldeans is basically just the name that the king gave to the people who are in his court, his, his close people. That's, that's the name that he gave them. That's kind of the only confusing part of this, right? The other, the other part reads pretty straightforward. The king has a dream, can't understand it, so he brings all of these wise people together, the ones that he feels are going to best suit him and best help him out. And he says, okay, I want to know what the dream is. Please tell me. Tell me what this dream means. And so his Chaldeans, the people who are the top in his, in his book, come to him and say, okay, we, yeah, king, you're so great. Let us know the dream and we'll interpret it, which seems fair and seems like the right order that things should go in, right? But as we continue into verse 5, we see this. The king replied to the Chaldeans, the command for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. Which seems like a slight (laughs) overreaction to me. Right? The king's going above and beyond, and he's saying, okay, let's see, let's see if my plan's actually working here. So I have a, I've brought together all these wisest, strongest, best, whatever people, but I feel like any wise person could interpret a dream. So let's see if these people can tell me what the dream was without me telling it to them and interpret it. That would be another, that'd be next level, right? That would be the next big thing that you could see if your plan was working how well these people have been trained up to benefit you. And so they argue a little bit back and forth uh, about, about how this is going to work. Um, and he asks them to tell them the dream and interpret it, or he will tear them limb from limb and destroy their houses. Again, it seems like an overreaction, but I'm not a king, so I don't know. So they argue back and forth, and they say, okay, yeah, for sure, like, just tell us the dream and we'll interpret it. And the king kind of gets a little bit upset again. And he says, you're stalling. You're, you're just trying to buy time. And I think, you're kind of, I, I think you're trying to swindle me. I think you're trying to toy with me. And likely what would happen is that these Chaldeans would say, oh, your dream means that you should pay your Chaldeans better. <laughs> I don't know how that's crazy how your dreams happen like that, right? They can interpret the dream however they want because the king trusts them to be the ones to do that. So that's why he's saying he is actually maybe also not trusting these guys at this moment, which is why he asked them to tell them the dream as well. So he says they're stalling, threatens to destroy them again, and the, they, okay, they say, okay, you know what? This, what you're asking of us is actually impossible. There is no, there's no man on earth that can do this. So what you're asking of us is quite impossible. We're not, we're not even going to try. We're not even going to try and make this happen. So they go... And the king goes to his right-hand man and says, okay, my plan has failed, so I want you to kill all of these wise people in my kingdom. Just like that. He's just making, he's just wiping this out. Okay, my plan failed. Let's start fresh. Let's start over. Kill all of the wise people in my kingdom. Now that would include Daniel and his buddies. That would include them. Clearly the king has forgotten how much He's liked Daniel and his friends, and he's forgotten what happened just a year prior, right? Where Daniel and his friends were, were ten times better than anyone. He's forgotten this. He's moved on. 
He's just spiraling in his own head, thinking, okay, my plan's failed. Time to wipe it out. Let's be done. So Daniel hears this, obviously, because people are coming to kill him. And he goes to this right-hand man and goes, okay, let me, uh, let me talk to the king. I, so I know someone can interpret this dream. So he goes to the king and he says, okay, give me a night, give me a day, and I will come back and, and interpret this dream. This dream will be interpreted for you, and I will tell you what the dream is. And so the king agrees to it. Which I think is a, Daniel putting this out there is actually a very bold statement, right? I don't think, at least least we don't read, that that God comes to Daniel and says, hey, go to the king, I will empower you to interpret this dream, it'll be great, people will write about it in a book, it'll be called the Bible, it's going to be really good. That doesn't happen as far as we read it. Daniel just makes this bold claim and says, okay, I'm going to, let's let's do it, Give give me a day, we'll do this which I think is crazy. So then he goes back to his house, to where his buddies are, and he says this in verses 17 and 18. Then Daniel went to his house and informed his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah about the matter, so that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So Daniel makes this request fully knowing that there is a mystery here and not knowing if God's actually going to pull through. He just wants to stop himself, his friends, and other people from being murdered, which is a valiant effort on his part, I think. He doesn't know if this is going to work. He really doesn't. So Daniel, after him and his friends pray, they go to sleep. Daniel has a, what, is the, what my translation calls a night vision, which sounds like a dream. Uh, Daniel has this dream of the king told to him and interpreted, just like he prayed for. And so Daniel's response is a prayer of absolute and complete praise. And so we're not going to uh, dive into it line by line, but I believe I have it on a slide here on the screen. So uh, if you want to read in your Bibles as well, you can see it. Um, there is a very awesome prayer prayed by Daniel at this point. But let's, let's touch on a couple pieces of it. So Daniel acknowledges that, the, that, that God has all the wisdom, which is incredibly important because he's essentially, while praying this prayer beforehand to God saying, reveal this mystery to me, he's essentially saying, okay, God, this is all you. <laughs> there is clearly, if all these wise people can't figure out this dream, this has got to be you. You have all the wisdom. I can't do this on my own. He makes that distinction, which I think is very important. Even once God has revealed this to him, he still makes that distinction. He also acknowledges that God removes and appoints kings. Now, this is important because, as we remember, Daniel's in exile here, right? The Israelites have been taken captive. So for Daniel to acknowledge the fact that God removes and appoints kings, it means that he also believes that God appointed Nebuchadnezzar to be king over the Israelites in this moment. So he knows, okay, look, I'm in exile. Things are not good for me. But God, I believe that you appointed this, that this is happening because of you. And it also kind of gives some foreshadowing to say, like, God, I also know that you will remove Nebuchadnezzar at some point, And you will restore your kingdom. And this is what I think is one of the most important parts of this prayer, is that towards the end, he he says, O God of my fathers. And he calls God the God of his fathers. 
Because just as Nebuchadnezzar forgets about Daniel and what Daniel has done, Daniel remembers what God has done. So not only does he remember what happened a year previous in the first chapter, where God strengthened him while he was eating only vegetables and water when when Daniel was obedient, he also remembers all of these stories from his fathers, his grandparents, forefathers, because he acknowledges that God is the God of his fathers. He has seen God move in his family members, in his tribe previously, which I think is incredibly vital to Daniel's faith. He remembers how God has moved previously. So Daniel goes in and to the king, and as promised, he explains the dream. And so we got a little snippet of it uh, in the video, so I won't go into too much detail, but, but here's what we know. There is a statue, right? And there's different parts of the body um, that are different types of metal. So the head is made of fine gold, um, which is Babylon, so this, this kingdom. So as he's explaining this to Nebuchadnezzar, I imagine Nebuchadnezzar going, that's right, I'm fine gold. I'm the best. I'm the best metal there is. I'm the top of this statue, which is in this dream is accurate. He is the top of the statue, right? We see that the chest and the arms are made of silver. The trunk and the thighs are made of bronze. The legs are iron and the feet are iron and clay, And each metal, you can see, kind of goes down in value as we make our way down the body. And each one of these body parts, the head is one, the chest and the arms is one, the trunk and the legs is one, the the rest of the legs and the feet. These are, as mentioned in the video, a train of kingdoms that would come afterwards. So different kingdoms that would actually take control of the Israelites at some point. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, if the dream stopped there, Nebuchadnezzar would be like, great, yeah, I'm a part of this awesome line of kingdoms who can keep captive all these Israelites, which is awesome and great for him. But the dream doesn't stop there, and we know that there's a giant stone or a giant rock that comes and crashes through that statue and eventually turns into a mountain that takes over everything. Now, with the benefit of foresight and the New Testament, we can probably confidently claim that this stone is Jesus right? That the stone is Jesus not, not wiping out or destroying kingdoms, but simply moving over and establishing his own kingdom. That eventually these Israelites will no longer be held captive, and that Jesus will return to establish his own kingdom. Now, Daniel has the opportunity at this point, as he's explaining this dream to Nebuchadnezzar, to say, that's right, your statue will be broken by my God and it's going to be awesome and it doesn't matter what you do to us because God will come through and it's going to be great. He has full right to do that as he's explaining this dream, right? To say that God ultimately wins and that means that you lose. But he doesn't. Because as we've seen in previous chapters and in this story and we will continue to see, I think that Daniel actually respects this king even though he stands in opposition to him. So Daniel simply explains this dream and says, this is, this is what's going to happen. Knowing full well in his heart that that means that God will win in the end. And that God will take over and free his people from captivity. So King Nebuchadnezzar is very happy. He appoints Daniel and his friends to high positions in the government. And everything is good. It's actually an interesting parallel to the story of Joseph, when you think about it, right? A, a, a pagan king 
has a dream that causes him lots of stress and anxiety. He doesn't know what to do with it. He tries to bring all of his people together to interpret it. No one can. Then there's this one person from God's kingdom that is actually held in captivity by this pagan king who can do it. He interprets the dream. The king loves it and appoints this person to a high position in authority and everyone's happy. Interesting parallel there. But I think what's important now that we know this story is always, so what? What do we do with this story? I think if we're going to read this story, we need to understand what it means for us. And we need to understand its cultural context, obviously. That's incredibly important, but I think it's important for us to know what it means for us now. And so Bruce mentioned last week that we live in a time that is very post-Christian, meaning uh, people are, are kind of moving past Christianity. There was a time where Christianity was the majority religion, and you could probably, if you surveyed nine out of ten people, you know, would probably respect it and think there was some truth to it. I have no idea what those numbers would look like now, but it would not be nine out of ten. <laughs> um, maybe you experience this in your workplace or at school, where if people know you're a Christian, they might actually think you're ignorant. They might think that you're oppressive. Uh, maybe they don't, and that's okay too, and that's actually really good for you. If people don't think that of you, that's awesome. But for many of you, that might be your reality. We live in a time where the world is post-Christian now. Uh, and I, I came across this really troubling stat about a week ago, uh, maybe two weeks ago, that I want to share with you. Um, and it's this. It's from the Barna Group in the States, which I really respect, a uh, research company that does a lot of Christian research, and they're the leading ones in, in the States. Um, it says this. 47%, which is almost 50, 47% of practicing Christian millennials agree with this statement. It is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they one day will share the same faith. 47% of practicing Christian millennials agree with this statement. It is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they one day will share the same faith. Now, I'm not saying this to shame millennials. I am a millennial. I'm not saying this to say that we really need to just go on this evangelism crusade. I'm not saying that. The reason I want to bring this to you is to say that evangelism isn't really happening as much as it once did, and we are already in a time of post-Christianity, where the world around us doesn't really believe that Christianity is, is right or true. I'm bringing this to you to say that we might have to be okay with the fact that we might be in exile for a long time if this stat holds true. So if only 53% of people even think it's okay to evangelize, then that means it's not happening nearly as much as it once did. And again, I'm not saying that to say we got to do certain things. I'm only saying that to bring this to you, to say that maybe in our lifetimes, we will live in a world of post-Christianity. We will live in a post-Christian world for our lifetimes. That's not a stat. That's my assumption. So we might have to be okay with understanding that we are in a type of exile, an exile that is minimal compared to what many people around the world face, but that we will be in a type of exile potentially for the rest of our lives. And I'm sorry if that scares you. It scares me a little bit too. Um, but I want to I establish that as we move forward. So now that we are in that exile, what do we do? What can we learn from Daniel if we can assume that we will be in this exile potentially for the rest of our lives? 
Well, I think an incredibly important theme in Daniel is that even when it doesn't seem like it, God is present. Even though Daniel and his friends are in exile and have, are literally taken captive by another group of people and are being held as captives, which is a time in, in Daniel's life where I imagine he doesn't feel that God is present, God's actually there. And so when we live in a world right now where, as Bruce shared last week, In 1967, many of you actually were around for this and would remember this, where Canada celebrated its 100th anniversary. There was prayers, there was hymns, there was all these things happening at its 100th anniversary. When God God was present there, we have to believe that God is just as present now. Even though we may not feel that. Even though we may not be able to walk down the street with a, uh, a giant cross hanging around our necks or some catchy Christian slogan on our shirts and not be chastised for it, um, God is still just as present now as he was then. God's power hasn't changed, and God's spirit hasn't left us in the last 50 years. That hasn't happened. So we have to believe that God is just as present now as he once was. And what gets Daniel through all of these hard times, so we think of, um, chapter 1, where, where the king's asking him to eat and drink certain food, and, and Daniel thinks, I, I, I don't think we should do that. We think of chapter 2, where people are coming to kill him, and he goes, okay, I, I think that God can possibly work in this situation. We think of chapter 3, when Daniel and his friends are told to bow down to this statue, or if you're a VeggieTales fan, a giant chocolate bunny, um, where they're told to bow down to this statue, and worship it as a god, and Daniel says, no, I don't think we should. Where Daniel is told to bow down and worship the king himself, and Daniel says, no, I don't think we should. Every single time he faces this, Daniel remembers that God has worked in his life before. That's the only thing dragging him through these situations, because God, or he believes that God is just as present now as he was when the Israelites were on top. When the Israelites were chosen as God's people, and were, you know, They had Moses going up to the mountain, and God was shining his glory on Moses, and God was providing for them in the desert. God was so present then. Daniel believes God is just as present in his current situation, and I think we need to, too. We need to remember to remember that God is always there for us, and that God has been there for us in the past, and that God will continue to be there for us now. What's awesome is, is, is the next chapter, and I don't want to ruin this for whoever's preaching next week, next week, but there's a point where Daniel's talking to the king about uh, bowing down to this statue. And he's talking about how he, he and his friends aren't going to do that because they have a God who will protect them. But here's a really cool line in this. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king which is a great line. But the next line is even better. But even if he does not, and he continues on, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Daniel is aware that even though God has been there for him in the past, that when he makes these bold claims, there's a chance that God may actually not deliver him in this situation. 
and he still has faith. This is a very minimal example, a very minute example in comparison, but every single night over the last nearly year and a half, my wife and I have prayed for our one-and-a-half-year-old son to sleep through the night. I think it's happened less than ten times in a year and a half. But we have faith that God can do it because we've seen him do it in the past. And we have so many friends whose kids are sleeping through the night. So we know that can happen. And yet, I've been trying to remind myself to say in my prayers that, God, please let Jake sleep through the night tonight. But even if he doesn't, you are still good. Even if this doesn't happen, I believe you can do it again tomorrow. It's a hard thing to remember and a hard thing to put out there because it almost feels like I'm doubting God, but I'm really not. I'm actually putting more faith in him by saying, God, even if it doesn't happen tonight, I believe that it can happen tomorrow. And I believe you are still good through it. And it didn't happen last night. (laughs) But I believe it can happen again tonight. I really do. So it's it's like saying to God, even if you don't come through the way that I want you to, I know you are so good, and I know you can move again in the future. I believe you can do it again. I think that's one of the main ideas we've got to take from Daniel as we move forward. Second one is this. There are, only, there are things in our lives that only God can accomplish, that we just physically cannot do. There are many things that we will face in our lives that maybe you actually feel are happening right now, but you cannot accomplish, that only God can. This is an important distinction because... We remember when, God, uh, when Daniel's praying this prayer to God that he says, God, you have all the wisdom. As in, I don't have it, but I need it from you to make this happen. This could be the case for us too. If you're facing something in your life that you feel like is really difficult and you've tried plans A through B through C through Z and nothing's working, maybe it's time to just relinquish this to God and just be like, look, this is a situation that I can't handle. And you need to do this. And there's been times in my life, too, where where I've felt this. Where I've felt like I've been facing something that's so large that I can't do on my own, even though I believe I'm a logical thinker, I believe I can problem solve, I believe that God has given me these abilities, I look at the situation and go, I can't do this. So God, if if you want me to be a part of this and you want this to happen, you've got to make it happen. And even if you don't, you're still good. Third thing is this. You may have a King Nebuchadnezzar in your life, but the question should be, how do you be Daniel to them? So maybe it's a boss at work who's trying to cut corners and asking, asking you to do things that are slightly less than legal. Maybe it's friends that you have that are continually pushing you to do things that you don't feel comfortable with and you don't feel that God would be comfortable with you doing either. Maybe it's a family member who you've tried to repair your relationship with them, but they're standing in the way, and they're, getting, they're not letting you do that. Let's remember how Daniel was to King Nebuchadnezzar. Never once in this chapter or the chapter previous does Daniel stand up with a flag flying high saying, I'm in opposition to you, and you have to bow down to my God. Never once. Daniel believes in himself that God will move and that if Daniel is obedient, that God will 
not reward him, but bless him in that and take care of him in that. So I don't know every single one of you and everything, what's going on in your lives or what you might be facing up against where you feel like you have someone who represents King Nebuchadnezzar in your life where they're continually asking you to do something that you don't want to do because you think that it goes against what God has for you. But let's look at Daniel as a role model. There are so many places in Scripture where as we, as we go over this, this video the Bible Project created for us, or created, not for us, <laughs> um, they created, we see so many times in Daniel where he has moved and, and, and been faithful to God when times look incredibly dire, and yet he remembers to remember what God has done for him in the past. If you're facing something where you feel like you have a King Nebuchadnezzar in your life who's constantly putting up roadblocks for you, remember how God has moved in you previously. And believe that he still can. Believe that he can do it again. I'm going to call the worship team forward and I'm going to pray for us. Because if we fully believe that there are things that we can't do on our own that we believe God needs to do, I think this is... I think this could be some of those things. So let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for the amazing ways that you have been faithful to Daniel. Um, Thank you for these stories that we can take encouragement from. Thank you that we can see you move in our own lives as well, Lord. Uh, I pray that we would remember to remember that you have been there for us that you have gotten us through things in the past. And help us to take faith in the fact that you can do those again. That you will continue to be with us. That you will continue to move in ways that can really just blow us away. Jesus, you are the only one that can do these things, which is why we ask them in your name. Amen.